0: Hello and welcome to the Deeper Podcast, a podcast all about unleashing courageous love in small and big ways. I'm Reverend Gretchen, and I am so glad to be turning the tables today on our podcast. As today, instead of hosting, we're welcoming Reverend Sean as our guest today.
1: Hello, hello, Sean.
0: hello. Welcome, welcome to that side of things. How's I like it feeling? Side. Feels good. <laughs> Yeah, today on the podcast we're going to be exploring your message and service on our let's call them our inherited ghosts. Ghost generational ghosts.
1: These intergenerational ghosts that hang around for for generations until something happens.
0: Yeah, and your your idea about healing backward. I know you and I both are become big fans of Resma Menican's work. Over the last couple of years, you talk a lot about um, his work and your in your message. you also got the chance to work with Resma in a more intense, regular way in the last last few weeks. So you, you want to share a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. so I had the opportunity to take uh, foundations in somatic abolition, which is a course that Resma led. It was a two- day online experience. and it really was unlike any other co- experience around racism or even, learning experience that I've been a part of. The the second day, which was with Resma was online and Zoom. We like dropped into a call of three or 400 people, white bodies, black bodies, bodies of culture, and Resma spent the entire time essentially working one-on-one, helping people process their own reactions, their physical embodied reactions to their experiences around race and white supremacy. You know, usually you go to a training and it's a lot of information, but with Resume, it wasn't. The information wasn't as important as the practice, the practice of connecting in on what's going on in your body. And, you know, he, he kept saying that we have time. We have time to connect in to what's going on. And it's through that process of understanding what's going on in our bodies that we're able to clear our nervous system, to have space, to encounter the situations that we're caught in, especially racialized experiences and shift the dynamic. It's not just about knowing the right thing to do or noticing that there's something, something racist going on, a dynamic that's that's harming or abusing a person of color but that you need the capacity within yourself to respond. And that means that your nervous system needs to be out of an anxiety response so that you can act.
0: What did you observe by watching him work with people that, you know, in terms of like that you couldn't take, can't take from the
1: A person would raise their hand to, to engage with him and they would begin to talk and then he would interrupt them and say, stop. Hold, and usually it was just you noticed in yourself your body starting to react to what they were saying. It could be that know someone's voice changes when they move into a different emotional register, like when you know they're stepping into a deeper level of truth or a more fearful place or a more anxiety-producing place. Their voice changes. Like as that was happening, he would have them stop and just like stay with whatever experience they were having. Because so often when we have those moments where we start to notice something, we, we push past it. We dodge it, talks about dodges. We, we intellectualize it, we rationalize it. We don't actually stop and feel. And what I noticed him doing is that he would literally stop someone, not allow them to talk, so they could sit with that experience. And then as they were sitting with it, you could see their own experience with the, with their own experience shifted. And then he would invite them to speak a little bit more. And as that same change in their body started to happen again, he would stop them again. As that anxiety started to move up, as the tension or the pain started to increase, he would stop them and invite them just to stay and to, to notice what was going on for them. And what happened is that he, after person, after person, after person, he would walk with them and help them find in their experience, like a pain that needed healing, like a specific experience that was either theirs or historical, or he would help them find what he would call a resource, a, a sustaining strength to draw on from their own experience, from wisdom passed down from ancestors from their own bodies, experience of stability, even in the face of anxiety, that he would then bring them to that place that they could then use at another point. And it was that deliberate slowness and the, the directing that I that I, didn't get. I didn't get from the book. And even as we're doing this works so of really like needing to force ourselves not to skip over the good stuff or skip over the, the challenging parts to unlock um, the goodness that's there, and even that goodness is sometimes pain, so that we can actually start to heal it. It's it's the wound, and as I think about the the work of of trauma more generally, not just racialized trauma, it's so easy to not want to touch that wound mm. and t- and to skirt around it, and yet it, and yet when we don't touch it we A, usually don't get to the resources that are connected in it, the, the the sustaining practices or sustaining tools that we've had to develop that are actually really life-giving. And then there's this kind of void of a no-go zone in our own lives.
0: It reminds me of last, the last time we talked for the podcast when we talked about how we could have a year's worth of living with ghosts. You know, just that acknowledgement of the ways that we are that we, we, we push through difficult things what and need to move on. And that those things accumulate over lifetimes that then accumulates over generations. And so what I hear you describing is like, what would it mean to radically slow down and tend to the things as they're happening, but also to go back to the things that were left untended? There's a lot of that's a lot of time. <laughs> I mean, it's a really slow process that you're describing. It takes a big investment of time.
1: I, it's not efficient. It, it doesn't lead you to the place that you think you're going. Like there's, there's a way that Resma talked about how this work that we're doing to build this anti-racist culture is not to develop tools to combat racism. Hmm the work we're doing is to do these practices so that something will be allowed to be released right it's it's like not like oh if i do this then this will happen it's like no when we do this and we build this capacity something that we can't even imagine will move forth and be able to be unleashed (laughs) and that's like a lot of control that you have to release and a lot of control but also like imaginatory control too
0: yeah it's like what we said last time that like missed putting mystery in every direction yeah. that you really have to be open to not to the unknowing so in for the sermon you tell a lot of personal stories and so i wonder just as we listen to the sermon if you can share just a little bit about or before we listen to the sermon if you can share just a little bit about how time worked for you as you were bringing out these stories that were about some of the generational struggles that you you face in your family and that you carry in your body
1: it's funny as a, as a preacher sometimes i'm like oh i've preached all my stories like everyone knows all the all the parts and then you come to this sermon and I realized, I don't think I've ever talked about this. And as I was constructing the sermon, cause it really, it, there's like different snapshots of in time, that kind of, you moved somewhat chronologically through my own experience. And what I realized looking back on that was how I didn't connect the dots together or all at once. As I was encounter each of the parts it was enough just to like start to unpack one of the parts. And then a few years would go by and then you'd unpack another one of the parts. And then it was only, you know, like 31, looking back and you're like, oh wow, all those parts are connected. And yet each of the times where I unpacked a part of the kind of the trauma that was transmitted, like it felt good to understand it, to be able to 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 see it rather than just experience it in its in it. In the way that trauma is present, kind of like a void. I was just saying, it's like a void. So I felt like I was on this kind of archaeological dig, really? and there was even a piece that clicked to me as I was writing. I was realizing, i I never connected my hesitancy to drive, to learn to drive, with the the trauma before. Huh. Like,
0: and it seems so obvious when you. It's so. It. I mean, it's
1: completely <laughs> obvious. Like, it's completely obvious so many of these things are so obvious but yet the way that trauma works is that it shuts down your your logical capacity to make connections
0: yeah i i think we should listen to it and then let's come back and i have a few more we can reflect a little more
1: do you remember the worst fight you've ever had with your mother i was 16 in high school beginning to test the boundaries of my newfound independence. My friends were all starting to get driver's licenses, and I was confident using public transport, which meant I was no longer reliant on my parents to get around for my daily activities. And thus, for the first time, my parents didn't always know where I was and couldn't directly control when I would arrive home, which you can imagine led to... Our first fight. You see, I had this bad habit of not being a good communicator about where I was or when I would be home. Part of this was just teenage attitude, like you don't need to know where I am. Part of it was kind of ADHD time blindness, like not exactly thinking through the whole situation. And part of it was that really in development frontal lobe So the afternoon in question, I arrived home later than expected. Now, this wasn't like into the wee hours of the morning. No, this was like definitely an hour after I was expected to be home. And of course, I had not communicated whatsoever about the change. I think I even looked at my cell phone and saw that I had many missed calls. Not good. Looking back, it was entirely my fault. But my indignant teenage self would never admit it. Thinking back, I can't even remember where I was, but what I do remember is the look on my mother's face when I arrived home. She was mad. Really mad. The type of anger that is a mask for fear. I walked in, in my mind it wasn't a big deal. So what if I didn't tell her when I'd be home? I was safe, I generally made good decisions, and here I was, home but like an hour late. What's an hour? And although my memory is hazy, I'm sure if I would have apologized and owned up to my mistake, the voices wouldn't have escalated. But I didn't. And so they did. We were in the kitchen. The island is in between us, the only thing separating us. As our voices rise and words begin to fly, arms out in emphatic gesture, Our energy feeding off of each other in the way that only happens when you're fighting with someone you love and have a history with. But there was a different quality to this fight. There was an intensity to it that I had never experienced. You know those fights where both of you want to stop it, but you just can't? You're locked in? It was like... We're driving on a highway and we saw the exit. And we started to turn the steering wheel to get into the off-ramp, but instead of turning, the car sped up instead. And exit after exit began whizzing by and the car is just getting faster and faster. There, There was a moment when I realized that I didn't have control anymore. That there was a force exerting itself in that moment that I was just a pawn. And inside I was screaming to myself, stop it. And at the same time, my mouth began to form utterly painful words. Inside I'm shouting in horror, don't say that, don't say it. And of course I did. I launched those words out of my mouth wishing I could grab them and pull them back. But I couldn't. I think we've all been there, to some extent. Maybe yours was with a family member, or maybe someone that you worked closely with, a dear friend, or maybe even a teammate. When something seemingly small became a flashpoint. Maybe it was a miscommunication, a misunderstanding, a difference of opinion about something seemingly innocuous that, instantly boils over with an intensity that seems out of proportion with the situation at hand. And you're kind of left in shock, defensive, confused, triggered. Like, how did we get here? If something is hysterical, then it is usually historical. Dr. Noel Larson reminds us. If something is hysterical, then it is usually historical. Translated to mean when someone's, including yours, when someone's reaction to a situation has way more or way less energy than you would normally expect. You've entered the realm of trauma. Now, back to the fight. We're locked in. It looked like nothing was going to save us. And it wasn't until my mother's rage transformed into a deep pained sadness that something shifted. I had grown up knowing that both my mother's parents had died in a car crash when she was 16. What I didn't know until that day, standing there in the kitchen, when her rage broke into heartbreaking pain was that she had been waiting for them at home and they had never arrived. That she had been waiting at home, like she had been waiting for me and that they had never arrived. So there I was, the same age she was at the time of the crash, acting like a normal teenager, coming home late, not communicating properly, fumbling over my independence, and I had stepped on a deep wound, a trauma, a trigger that I never connected the dots about, and of course, shouldn't be expected to. Now that revelation changed everything. Clarity dawned within me, and I wish I could say that it resulted in me apologizing then and there, but I don't think I did. I think I just deflated and slumped down, retreating into my downstairs basement bedroom. Now I I need to say that my mom and I have a good relationship. It was a bit testy during my teenagers and my early adulthood, but now it's very strong and... It's always been very loving. Despite her childhood trauma, I never felt its overt presence like I did on that day. It was never a secret or something we couldn't talk about. It was a few years later though that I started to connect some other dots together. My own anxiety when someone didn't show up on time was usually accompanied by intrusive images of them in a car crash. Or how when I was a passenger in a car, if there was a sudden acceleration or a close call or something unexpected, for the rest of the car ride, my knuckles would be white from gripping onto something. Or even the fact that I resisted learning to drive, not learning till I was 25 and about to move to Fort Collins, Colorado to take a job at Foothills Unitarian Church. Now, I never experienced a car-related trauma. Nor did I notice my mother being a nervous driver. And yet, here I was, noticing anxieties, fear, intrusive thoughts and images related to an event that occurred decades before my birth. These are good clues that trauma is present. That what is going on didn't start with me. But like most people, we often don't look backwards for answers. We look around us finding the blame for our experiences in ourselves or other people. And yet often we are better served to look backwards to what lays unresolved in the past for clues. The stories that our families don't talk about, the histories that are ignored or whitewashed, the wounds that are too painful to speak about and thus weren't, the injuries too shameful to acknowledge. In his book, It Didn't Start With You, Mark Wolin writes, Sometimes pain submerges until it can find a pathway for expression or resolution. That expression is often found in the generations that follow. That the legacy of trauma extends far beyond the lifetimes of those who experienced it directly. Reshma Menekin writes that trauma is anything that happens too soon, too much, too fast, or too long. It is the body's protective response to the real or perceived inescapable overwhelm of a situation. That trauma is not about the event itself, but about the impact that event had on a person. It is what happens inside of us when what happened happens. And as pioneering Dutch psychiatrist Bessel van der Kolk brought into modern awareness, it's the body, not the mind, where trauma resides. The body keeps the score. In fact, one of the first impacts of trauma is the impairment of the frontal lobe, causing an individual experiencing or reliving a traumatic event to have trouble thinking or speaking. They are no longer capable of communicating to either themselves or to others precisely what's going on. Thus, the realities of trauma can't be easily communicated through words, and they are often communicated by actions or inactions transmitted body to body. The way I probably noticed tension in my mother's body that she may not even have noticed in herself related to cars or lateness. Researchers have even found that trauma is passed down genetically. In fact, it could have been in my very DNA that I was predisposed to this sort of anxiety. In one scientific study, scientists conditioned mice to fear a certain smell. It happened to be an orange cherry blossom. They did this by electroshocking them each time the smell was released. Now, after a while, the shocked mice they actually had greater amounts of smell receptors associated with that particular scent, enabling them to detect it at lower concentrations. But even more interesting, both their children, their pups, and their grandpups, when exposed to that blossom odor, became jumpy and avoided, despite having never experienced it or the electroshots. The mice appear to inherit not only the sensitivity to the scent, but also the fear associated with that scent. What's hysterical is historical. And as Resma Medicin adds, you're not defective, you're protective. I mean it makes sense, right? The mice's reactions are not defective, they're passing down a pretty common sense instruction. Hey. Watch out for this thing that smells like a cherry blossom because a shock's coming your way. The problem, of course, is that unlike a fear of snakes or plants that might, you know, kill them, cherry blossoms aren't any threats to mice. So their big, protective reactions are unnecessary and contribute to a heightened state of anxiety, especially during cherry blossom season. This intergenerational transmission of trauma is supposed to serve an evolutionary protective function. But imagine, if you will, with me, if those mice in those experiments were actually a group of humans, and that after a few generations, they were released out of the lab. I know it's odd, but stay with me. Now, their trauma related to a smell would show up not just in their individual behavior, but in their very culture they would not plant cherry trees. They would probably have a taboo against eating oranges. They would probably not choose to live in places where cherry trees were native or would systematically cut them down. After a few generations without any contact with cherry trees, the immediacy of the taboo might fade, but the injury probably remained. Rumors were developed that any tree that flowered like a cherry tree was also dangerous and should be removed. Maybe even a small splinter group would form to protect those other trees and would be shamed and exiled. As Rezma Menikin writes, after months or years, unhealed trauma can appear to become part of someone's personality. Over even longer periods of time, it is passed on and gets compounded through other bodies in a household It can become a family norm. And if it gets transmitted and compounded through multiple families and generations, it can start to look like culture. Of course, that's an imaginary situation. And yet, replace the smell of cherry with, well, an experience with an ethnic group, nationality, or another religious group. Instead of fear of cherries, you have fear of the other. And while you uncover the roots of many modern conflicts and, well, racism, the way that the trauma of European bodies who were at war with each other for generations causing a massive traumatic wound that only seemed to stop when they reconstituted themselves in a whiteness that turned the violence against black and indigenous bodies, that the root of racism is trauma itself. But of course, the problem with trauma is that it's passed down, not in a neat package with an instruction manual to decode. It instead, we're sort of haunted by seemingly invisible ghosts, possessed by forces that exert a remarkable power over us. Ghosts living not just in our conscious minds, but in our very bodies. So how do we, as Norman Doge writes, turn ghosts into ancestors? We must Heal backwards. Now, if you've ever had an experience working with children who experienced early childhood trauma, you know that often when they begin to feel safe in a new environment, their behavior tends to regress. They begin to act in ways younger than they are. Often this is because they are unconsciously returning to an age where they experienced trauma that stopped their normal development and are seeking to re-experience normal developmental experiences backwards. A teenager desiring to eat with their hands and throw food on the ground like a toddler or maybe an elementary school-aged child asking to be held and rocked like an infant wanting a bottle or a pacifier. And what child development experts recommend when such behavior arises is to not fight it, to make them act their age, but to embrace it allowing the child to experience having their developmental needs being met, maybe for the first time, in a safer and a more connected relationship. Often, once this has been done, it really, of course, just takes one moment, the regressive behavior will cease, turning that ghost into just an ancestor, that haunting into just history. To turn our ghosts into ancestors, we must heal the wounds of the past. Now, theologian Serene Jones says, with individual and collective trauma, the harm haunts you, haunts the dreams of the individuals and the collective unconscious of a society until you tell the story, until you face the truth of what happened. And Elaine, a few weeks ago, spoke about how shame gets in the way of us telling our stories and how the way to move forward with that is to tell the story. But the problem with trauma is, of course, Traumas that are passed down from generations to generations, or even our own, is that we often don't know the story we need to face or can't express it. And so we're left only with the residual behavior, the scar that formed around the wound of the trauma of the past, which becomes the nexus of our exploration for our most important tool, which is curiosity. For what we need to do is to discover the names of our ghosts, visible to us only in the murky manifestations of the present. But with enough curiosity, those manifestations start to congeal into something of a story that makes sense. Now, Monk Rowland in the book speaks about his work as a therapist with a man named Jesse. Jesse was a 20-year-old star athlete and straight-A student. But a year before he stepped into Mark's office, he had been hit with this persistent insomnia, causing him to spiral downwards into depression and despair. It was so bad that he had to drop out of college forfeiting a baseball scholarship. Before this time, sleep had always come easy for him. But one night, just around his 19th birthday, he awoke suddenly at 3.30 in the morning. He felt cold, freezing. He was shivering, unable to get warm no matter what he tried. Three hours and several blankets later, he was still wide awake. He was gripped with a new fear that if he fell asleep, something awful was going to happen. That if he went to sleep, he would die. Now, during the course of the therapy, Mark asked if either side of the family had suffered a trauma involving being cold or being asleep or being 19. This is the curiosity, right? Being curious about the behaviors that are being manifest and Jesse revealed that his mother had only recently told him about the tragic death of his father's older brother and uncle never knew he had uncle Colin was only 19 when he froze to death checking power lines in a storm just north of Yellowknife in the Northwest territories in Canada. I get shivers reading that because three decades later, Jesse was unconsciously reliving aspects of Colin's death, the terror of letting go into the unconscious. For Colin, letting go meant death. For Jesse, falling asleep felt like the same. It was through making the connection that Jesse found a turning point. Grasping that his insomnia had its origins in an event that occurred 30 years earlier, he finally had an explanation for his fear of falling asleep. And the healing work of disentangling himself from the trauma endured by an uncle he'd never met or never knew about could begin. Maybe what you are struggling with didn't start with you. Maybe what we are struggling with as a society didn't start with us. Maybe what we are called to be is curious about our experiences and begin to see the patterns so that we can heal. Backwards. Now, When I was in college, I started to go to therapy. After I had my first panic attack, a crippling experience of deep existential fear and dread. I remember one session my therapist looked at me and said, you know that's not normal, right? I sort of blinked at her, what? I had been recounting that ever since I was a child I had an ever-evolving but always up-to-date plan of what I would do when both my parents were killed. Which relative would my sister and I stay with? Would I drop out of school to get a job? Would I move back home from college? All of it worked out, preparing for what just seemed like the inevitable. You've had this for how long? Ever since I remember? Most children don't have that plan, she told me. In fact, it would never cross their minds to need one. Why do you think it did for you? I sat there stunned because I knew the answer and I had found the place for the healing to begin. It it didn't start with you. What's hysterical is historical. You're not defective, simply protective. It's time to heal backwards. Amen. And blessed be.
0: All right. So my pressing question that I feel like everybody always asks me, but I never get to ask you, which is, has your mom heard this sermon?
1: Uh, not yet.
0: Are you gonna encourage her to listen or
1: I mean it's it's funny that she's coming to visit in right. like three days. Yeah. Yeah, I am. I've been thinking about this, my husband asked me. Are you going to ask your mom if you can tell these stories? And I had a moment of, maybe I should, but then I realized that actually I'm not telling her story. Like, I'm telling my story. It's, It's my experience growing up with her as my mother, and it's also the unique way that my particular constellation of cells experiences and peculiarities processed this that it really is m- about me not not about her and so I'm really curious to to have her listen and to and to see what she saw from the other side mm-hmm. um, and I I want to hear more about her own processing of of her experience um, and what it was like to have us and to have me growing up in that time and whether or not those dots were connected for her at all or maybe i was projecting um a lot onto her so not not yet but i'm but i'm very curious
0: yeah and if she like does she have her version of your childhood plan for when they die you know and how did that play out for her and then how she's what pieces she's put together over the course of her life yeah, I can't wait to. You'll have to report back.
1: Yeah, I was just thinking, could have a guest, spring oh. our mothers on, and one half for mine, one half for yours.
0: I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm in favor of the one about your mom. Yeah, for, for, <laughs> although my mom would probably be very excited about it. I want to go back to some of the things we were talking about about Resma, and in particular, some of the things that, that he, like as we've been working with his work, some people have expressed some concern or question around what it means for people, for um, white bodies to be leading or engaging his work. And I wondered about you know, just how do you think about that question and how did you think about it as you engaged your sermon, which isn't exactly just about you know racialized trauma or even somatic abolition in his work, but, you know, how are you starting to think about the question of what does it mean to be somebody with a white body engaging some of these questions?
1: One of the parts of, of Resma's book where he talks about of- Directly to white bodies. It's it's near the end of my grandmother's hands. He says that he wants to help white people understand the trauma that is inherent in whiteness, because it it is a trauma. It's both the 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 creation of the concept of whiteness is a trauma as it disentangled ethnic and national identities. It's also a trauma because of its inherent anti-blackness and white supremacy. Like there, there is a, there is a trauma that happens to us when we inflict pain on others and, and that is inherent in, in whiteness. And he says the, all of that is not an excuse for your behavior. You know, that just because you've received trauma, white people receive trauma make people go through their lives experiencing childhood or other types of trauma doesn't mean that you aren't responsible and accountable for your behavior and for you know the interruption of that generational trauma that continues through you especially for us as white folks who who are privileged in the ways that our bodies are the norm and our bodies are protected placed on the pedestal in our society and his invitation in the the one call to action he had after the day together was for white bodies to spend time with other white bodies, practicing this connecting to your own somatic, your own bodily experience and creating that capacity for that spaciousness to respond in different situations so that you could lift up voices of color, make space for them, be less nervous and anxious and shut down when you are encountering a person of color and that that was the call to action it was like meet with other white folks do this work together so that we can create this space for this collective work to shift and so i don't have a i don't have any problems with white people doing this work because we've been called on by people of color by leaders in racial justice for for generations and i think it's a dodge for white people to to say no 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 i need a person of color to lead this especially when we're in communities that were intentionally created in a segregated way. And so that there aren't, you know, a vast majority of people of color around. I think it's a convenient way to just maintain that white superiority and to not have to do the work instead of taking responsibility for the generations of, of violence and pain that brought us to where we're at.
0: You gave a nod to what you just said, but in this the context of Northern Colorado, where we are, which yeah, has historical reasons for why it is so both segregated and majority white bodies. But to think about what it means for us to take up this work in this community and in this time. And by that, I mean in a time when nationally, the national work to try to silence or quiet work around, you know, telling some of these stories, either um, through the critique of quote unquote critical race theory, or the the efforts to silence the the incredible work of the sixteen nineteen projects, or that 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 that's a move that's been happening nationally, and now we're starting to see it even start to show up very locally. You know, what does it mean for us as leaders in a congregation that's majority white that is and white bodies ourselves like what does it mean for us in this time and this place to pick up this work
1: i've been confounded by the fervor around critical race theory um for a lot of reasons. And I and I feel like the conversation that we usually get into is like this semantic conversation of, you know, well technically they're not teaching critical race theory. And and that's kind of like ha conservatives are still stupid. They're they're getting, you know, all up in a tizzy about something that's not happening. Because what's happening is that white conservative forces are aligning themselves with white nationalist forces in trying to rewrite the already whitewashed history that we teach in our public schools. They don't want white bodies to encounter the true stories of the pain, the violence, the degradation that has been visited on Black, Indigenous, Hispanic bodies since the beginning of colonization and this country they don't want to face that and they don't want their white children to encounter that narrative because it challenges an identity that they have
0: Um, or or even like it i think to put it in rosa's frame i think it's it's also like inviting us to deal with some trauma and some that we are not equipped to deal with. And so sometimes I interpret some of those moves as you know, a sort of confession of, an, of, of inadequate tools. And, and, you know, I don't think that's what they think they're doing, but just an acknowledgement that we, like, we can't do it. We're not capable of, of addressing this pain. And, and it is like, you know, in the same way that trauma, like in that fight, flight, freeze mode moves to a place of just, just inadequate capacity. Cause it's so profoundly irrational. And like you said, like, it just, it, it moves to a different realm of conversation. And in that, you know, just being able to say like, truly, I, like, I don't have the, we don't have it are we didn't, we didn't learn those skills.
1: The other layer is that people are saying, oh, teaching about racism is divisive. And we don't want to teach this history because it isn't who we are, right? Equality of opportunity, no state sanctioned quote unquote racism here, right? Like we just had a black president. Like there's, there's a way in which that rhetoric gets thrown in the way. And so the way I've been thinking about it is that we don't want to teach this history because it would invite white slaveholders and the clan to the table, it would invite the people who lynched black people for generations. It would invite them into our family tree and it would claim them in a really overt way of seeing them fully. Mm -hmm. And, 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 you know, I didn't get to get into this in the sermon, but there's like a lot of work on trauma and intergenerational trauma says that you need to invite your whole family to the table. Like if you're going to deal with fam- trauma in your family, you, you have to have a place for all of the people. That doesn't mean you need to invite them over and talk with them, but you need to like not, be, not exclude them from belonging, even if they've committed terrible deeds. And so there's a, there's a way in which not teaching about the, the violence of racism in this country is a way of not inviting our, those ancestors to the table. And thus, we're going to, we've inherited the trauma, so we're going to be moving through the implications of the trauma, but then we're not even going to be able to understand where it came from because we're going to look back at our family tree and not know who these people were that were causing this place because we never learned about it. And that's why I think like the projects like the 1619 Project are so important, right? They're retelling the American origin story in a way that's more holistic, more inclusive, more true to the experience of in, enslaved peoples being central to the founding of this country. And it puts, it gives them a place on the family tree of the American family tree. It's not just a bunch of white presidents and white revolutionaries. It is putting the experience of those who were enslaved forcibly brought here into the family tree and us that are having to reckon with what does it mean to be a part of this family?
0: Mm. Yeah, when you said about divisive and that it's that people will say that it's like teaching this is divisive. Sometimes what I what I hear in that is they like they that comes paired with a worry that it makes white folks feel really bad about themselves, (laughs) and that that's all that that that's the then the identity is formed in guilt and shame basically. And what I really appreciate about Resma's work is that he refuses that frame and instead continues to, to acknowledge the, tra- the injury and trauma that this has caused everyone, including white-bodied people. So that to me, I think this approach, it, it was when I first learned of it, is it, it is the opposite of divisive <laughs> It is k- deeply compassionate in that, you know, acknowledging our the ways that we have all been injured and that we are all in acting out of that injury and that we could be healed by tending to these things rather than, I don't know, kind of a Like a more mechanical view that I think sometimes people think about when you said like the anti-racist tools that somehow we're just going to come up with some tools and then fight racism like it's a, you know, war (laughs) to instead really go soft about it, you know, to recognize the softness of this work and to recognize like it's, it's so it's it's embracing rather than divisive.
1: Right. You're not defective, you're protective.
0: Right. It's one of my I favorite mean, things.
1: I, I mean, imagine if that was the way that we approached, you know, the the person attending the school board rally. Right. You, are you saying they don't have the tools. You know, right. They come into the school, they don't want them to teach critical race theory. And the way we respond is, hmm, "What's what are they protecting? And how I think about Karen Hutt, who we had early on in a season of deeper, you know, she, she had a story where she was, she met like a Trump, Trump supporting woman in a Facebook chat room. You know, Karen's a black woman, UU minister, chaplain, and she's in a Trump, (laughs) right, queer, she's in a Trump, you know, she, she doesn't show up as that. I think she has a fake identity, but she's like showing up in this, women for Trump group. And you know, someone's railing against something and her response is, I think she's being abused. I, I want to help her. Mm. And I and I wonder if that's, that might be a powerful frame to think about the reactionary elements in, in ourselves and in the society of like, huh, there's abuse here. There's trauma here. Let's tend to that. Not the, not the shame, not that you're wrong, but wow, there's a, there's a deep wound here.
0: And I, I think what I hear, even just in the way you're speaking is also to what it means to respond by slowing down instead of ramping up. And so how do we, instead of meeting the urgent aggression of today, how, instead of meeting it with equal urgency, how do we try to slow down? And imagine, as you say, healing backwards.
1: Yeah, Resma in the training kept saying, you have enough time. Mm. You have enough time. He would just repeat that over and over again. And then he said, characteristic experiences of white supremacy is urgency and stuckness. Mm. And then I was like, wow, I pivot between urgency and stuckness all the time. Those are my go-to favorite places to live. And so what would it mean to think I have enough time so I don't need to feel urgent, I don't need to rush, I can slow down. And also I have enough time because often I feel stuck, especially when it relates to race and racism that I, I want to get it right. And so I feel like if I can't get it right right away, then I don't know what to do, but if there's enough time, if there's enough time for me to, to fail and try again and learn and grow and get to know myself, then maybe I don't have to be, I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be stuck.
0: Cause something else is happening. Yeah. Something. We can't predict. That's the mystery.
1: And, and and to know that my my stuckness is connected to other people's stuckness, mm. and that there's a mutual part of that. That's the collective liberation piece.
0: Which also means that you're like the ways that you aren't actually stuck is interconnected too. So that yeah. like that that story of being stuck. Is equally untrue in others too. So the places where we see others and we think, "Oh, they're,
1: they're never going to change," they're
0: immovable. That that too is not the whole story, right? All right. Well, better in there. Thanks for thanks for talking about your message and sharing more about Resma's good work. Thanks for being a guest on our podcast.
1: It's good to be here.
0: <laughs> So if you love the Deeper podcast, we'd love for you to just subscribe, rate, and give a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. It makes a really big difference in helping people find the pod. Until next time, thanks for listening.